Welcome back to the Sports and Chill Podcast. It's a pleasure to be coming to you again. And this week we have a special guest on the podcast. We have Mr. Fred Mitchell, who is one of the greatest sports journalists ever in Chicago. And he was the first black journalist at the Chicago Tribune. And this week I got a chance to sit down and talk with him about his career and things he's seen that have changed in the landscape of journalism. I hope you all enjoy this podcast, and don't forget to subscribe so you can get each and every interview that we have. Now here's the podcast. It's good to be finally able to talk to you, Mr. Fred Mitchell. It's an honor. First of all, how did you get into writing, and where you where did you grow up? Born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I grew up in Gary, Indiana. I was always involved in a combination of sports and, and writing. In high school, I was the editor of the school paper and the school yearbook. I also played football and baseball and ran track. And uh, then when I went to college at Wittenberg University in Ohio, uh, I continued to write as a sports editor for the newspaper and the yearbook. And I played football and ran track. So uh, I was always fascinated with the craft of writing, and I read a lot, uh, read a lot of newspapers and magazines, and uh, certainly uh, the emphasis was on sports, but I read other books as well. Coming out of college, this was during the 60s, uh, so it was a turbulent era, certainly, yeah. with uh, all the things that went on with the Vietnam War, uh, with uh, assassinations of Martin Luther King, and both the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Malcolm X. It was a very turbulent time uh, in our American history. Uh, right out of college, I, I went into teaching. I was a high school English teacher, and I coached football and track and wrestling. And uh, I, I got a deferment, a military deferment, because I taught And uh, right out of college. And uh, the writing was, was still in the sort of in the, in the back of my mind. But frankly, there were not uh, many, if any, uh, black role models to make me believe that this was a realistic route to go. Mm-hmm. But uh, after teaching for five years uh, at Grove City High School in Ohio, it's a, it's a suburb in Columbus, Ohio, uh, it was a great experience. I enjoyed every minute of it, both the teaching of the English and, and the coaching. But I felt like I wanted to do something else. I wanted to move on to something else. And I wasn't clear at that initial time what it was I wanted to do. So I came up from Ohio to Chicago. And there was a colleague of, of my father's named Bill Lowry, who was a, a black man who uh, had gone to Kenyon College in Ohio. And as I said, he was a, he was a, he kind of interned, I guess you'd say, under... My father, who was a steel mill executive at Inland Steel Company. So Bill Lowry uh, advanced quickly and actually had a TV show in Chicago on Channel 2 CBS called Opportunity Line, where mm-hmm. he would, you know, people try to line up people with jobs. So okay. my father thought, well, this is somebody I should connect with. So I met with him downtown Chicago on Monroe Street. And he set up several interviews for me, one with the Northern Trust Bank, uh, Quaker Oats Company, a couple other places. 
mostly public relations type mm-hmm. jobs. So I came back to his office after these uh, meetings, and he looked at me, and, and he, I guess you could tell I wasn't totally enthused about any of those possibilities. <laughs> so he said, well, you know, what is it that you'd really like to do? And I said, well, I said, and it was almost hard for me to verbalize it. And I, I said, what I'd really like to do is be a sports writer, but I'm, I'm sure that's, that's not even a possibility. Yeah. Because at that time, there was one uh, black writer, uh, Wendell Smith, and he was at the, uh, I think it was the Sun-Times? The, 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 well, Daily the News and, and, in the, and then the Sun-Times, okay. yeah. Uh, he said, well, wait a minute. He says, I need a couple phone calls for you. And he called over to the Tribune and uh, uh, lined up an interview for me. And uh, it just so happened that they had an opening on the copy desk at, at the Tribune. And they felt that my background as an English teacher and, and sports background and school newspaper, et cetera, that, uh, that I might be a, a fit for that. So I said, yeah, raise my hand. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it wasn't, you know, it was just getting my foot in the door, basically. Yeah. So um, I did that and uh, got hired and paid my dues, as I tell uh, everybody, that uh, I worked uh, – on the copy desk, and that's a very important job and a great way to learn the job professionally. Uh, you write the headlines for the stories, you edit the copy, you check for spelling and grammatical errors, you research the facts. Uh, you're the last person's eyes on the copy before it goes into the newspaper. So it's very important. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned that, and I then I spent about a year as a composing room editor. This is before all the computerization started. We're talking about 1974 when I started. So uh, I had to learn how to get, to get along with, uh, with the printers to get them to cooperate. Turns out I was the first African-American sports writer at Chicago Tribune history. Wow. And this is nice. what, uh, like, uh, uh, Jackie Robinson, yeah. uh, 1947. So uh, it's uh, 27 years later that the Tribune integrated its sports department. So I, I spent some long hours there. I spent almost a year working from 10 o'clock at night until 5 in the morning. It was the overnight shift, and the, the new guy, the, the new guy stuck with that. Yeah. <laughs> and the joke was, well, just in case George Hallis dies, we need somebody there. <laughs> so uh, I did that, and, uh, and it, you know, it took a lot of perseverance uh, to stick with that. And there were, you know, some obstacles on the, on the way, and, you know, some people were were doubting me, well, maybe you're not cut out for this, and, well, you know, you haven't really given me a chance yet. Yeah, I was yeah. reading I was reading that, that there's a comment that's all over a line uh, from John Hussar. Mm-hmm. He was saying that he was surprised yeah. that the yeah. Tribune had hired a, a black Yeah, he was, he was, I'm sitting at around this uh, uh, composing room desk, we call it the rim, so that the copy editors are sitting here, and the person in the middle is, is like the, the copy chief who would hand out the stories for you to edit. So I'm sitting there, you know, first year there. John Huzar was this big six foot, I don't know, six foot five guy with a big booming voice, and he'd been an outdoors writer and uh, other wrote other columns as well. Very good writer. And uh, and he came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said something to the effect that uh, uh, you know, the world must be coming to an end or something like that. Who would have thought that uh, the Tribune would hire a black sports writer? 
and uh, you know he, he's trying to be funny about it, but it was kind of an awkward moment mm-hmm. for me to to hear that. Uh, but that was uh, that was what I was dealing with, and, and, I, and frankly, I did not, uh, never did ups, obsess about the fact that I was uh, the first, and, and and that there have not been very many since. Because if, if you do obsess over that kind of thing, you drive yourself crazy. <laughs> and uh, I just tried to learn as much as I could wherever they asked me to work, whether it was working the, as a copy editor or, or the composing room editor, high school sports uh, writer, Bulls writer, whatever it was. I tried to do the best I could uh, regardless. And uh, if anybody else had a problem, uh, you know, with my color, then that's I made it made sure it was their problem, and not my problem, because then you get caught up in that, and, and nobody wins. So, that's so people it. people still probably sent you like hate mail and things like that. Yeah, or, I got I got some hate mail. Um, uh, I, I had some people, uh, you know, before my picture appeared in the paper and just my byline, mm-hmm. and so people who didn't know me didn't know that I was black mm-hmm. and uh and someone had uh, a reader tell me when they found out i was black said oh you were you write like a, a white man I, I thought you were white so you know how am i supposed to take that uh so yeah i got that and, and like i said I, I got a lot of racially charged uh mail uh, and uh, some of which i kept because there were some threats in it so once again, uh, I'm sure it's a minority of, of people who felt that way and, and expressed their their feelings, and uh, uh, and that's once again that's their problem. I know there wasn't a lot of people writing as black sports writers, but who did you look up to, and who motivated you to keep doing what you were doing? Mm-hmm. I had a lot of uh, people that I admired at the at the Tribune who uh, really helped me, especially you know at the start in my career. Don Pearson comes to mind, a great Bears uh, writer for the Tribune. Bob Birdie was somebody I, I admired, uh, and uh, many, many others uh, who took the time to to uh, sort of mentor me and uh, answer questions. And at that time, we didn't do so much remotely as we do now. We didn't have the, you know the comp- computers where you could write from home or, or, or wherever. So you came into the office on a daily basis back then. And that was good for uh, a young uh, journalist to be able to observe the veterans and and listen and interact with them. Uh, I thought that was was invaluable for me. So uh, I I appreciated that opportunity. Uh, Now to Sun-Times, I think a couple years earlier perhaps, uh, Lacey Banks started at Sun-Times. And uh, it turns out that our uh, our uh, career paths didn't intertwine that much because I, I covered the high school sports and then the Bulls and the Cubs and the Bears, and then I wrote a column, whereas uh, Lacey spent most of his time covering the Bulls. He covered other, other sports, obviously, as well, many other sports. Uh, you know, I got to know him fairly well, and he was, uh, he was somebody who uh, was a pioneer sometimes wow. you've seen some great games how was that um, mm-hmm. covering the Bears Super Bowl as well as the Michael Jordan years for you 
we all pitched in and helped so with the Bears championship years as the Bulls championship years. I was the Bulls beat writer in the early 80s, right before Michael Jordan joined the team. I had the uh, artist Gilmore, Reggie Theus, uh, David Greenwood, Dave Corzine, those guys. Uh, but I did help out in all the postseason games uh, when Jordan uh, and Pippen were, were stars. Yeah. At times during these games, were you the only black male there covering the beat? I noticed that when I covered the Cubs, covered baseball, Matter of fact, USA Today newspaper did an article back in 1987 or 86, 87, somewhere around there, about the fact that there were only three African-American sports writers in the country covering baseball on a regular basis out of literally hundreds and hundreds of writers. It was uh, Claire Smith, who was recently inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, she was writing for the New York Times. And uh, Larry Whiteside, who was a real pioneer, uh, was writing for the Boston Globe covering the, the Red Sox. And, and I was covering the Cubs. And that, and that was it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you couldn't help but, but notice that. That at that time was the fact that uh, Al Campanis, who's a, a Los Angeles Dodgers executive, at that time was on Nightline TV show and was asked, it must have been on the uh, anniversary of Jackie Robinson's uh, Breaking the Color Line. And uh, he was asked about the lack of African-Americans and uh, management, upper management and managers in, in baseball at that time. And, uh, and I don't know if he'd had a couple drinks before, but he, <laughs> he, he said that... Uh, Blacks do not have the necessities to be in those positions. And the the host of the show kept trying to help him dig himself out of that hole, and, and he just kept digging himself in deeper uh, with that statement. So the media really hopped on that Al Campana story and eventually led to his resignation. Uh, but then the point was made that the media is – sort of policing baseball, major baseball, and its lack of diversity at that point. And yet, when you look at the newspaper business itself, and then they, and then they saw that oh, there's only three African-American baseball beat writers yeah. in, 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 the, in the country. So that, that brought that point uh, to, the, to the forefront. Um, but, yeah, that, in all the beats that I've covered, um, it's, uh, it's changed uh, fairly, fairly much uh, from when I started. Why do you think there was so little? Well, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the common uh, excuse, I guess you'd say, from editors and from newspapers is that, well, we don't know of any qualified African-American writers. And and at that point, they were encouraged to go to the NABJ conventions, for example, and, and look at the numbers and quality of, of African-American writers who were looking for jobs, who would love an opportunity uh, like that. Um, so that's, that's, that's one reason. That's it's probably the biggest excuse, I guess you would say, that it's been given. Um, you know, I was fortunate and, and that somebody took a chance on me as a young man and nurtured me and let me learn the ropes, so to speak, and, and 
and just kept moving up a notch and moving up a notch as I proved myself capable of doing it. And that's why I always say, regardless of how you start out, as long as you get your foot in the door, uh, it may not initially be the job and position that you aspire to, but people are watching you and they're, they're ch watching your work ethic you know, and then see how you, how you go about your, your job, your personality, your willingness to learn, all these things come into play uh, before you can finally get your chance. And, and I always say uh, that, you know, be prepared so that if and when you do get that opportunity, that you do well, because it might be the only shot that you get. If you, somebody gives you a chance and you, and you, and you blow it, then, then that, that, that's going to, you know, might be the last chance you get. Time for a quick break. Just wanted to let you all know that I continue to appreciate all the love that you all send to me. We are in our 10th month of making this podcast, and it continues to grow each and every month with guests, fans, and it's truly humbling to see all the responses that I'm getting. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a review and rate because we appreciate it. And we just want to know how we can continue to make this podcast an enjoyable experience. We appreciate it. Now back to the podcast. You know, we are at a time and place where there are more black journalists. And I went to my first NABJ conference this past summer, and it was the greatest yeah. experience I've ever had. And you've been inducted to the NABJ Hall of Fame. That's how was that for you? And um, how do you think NABJ has changed the landscape for up-and-coming black journalists? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was nice to be recognized. NABJ convention was held in Chicago, and I think it was 1997. And uh, it was certainly nice to, to be recognized uh, from that organization. I think, I think that organization has spawned uh, the, the Hispanic uh, version, mm -hmm. if you will, and it gives a, a stronger voice to the minority uh, population and once again you know, lets people know that there, here's, here's some quality people looking for jobs, looking for a chance, looking for an opportunity uh, so you don't have that old uh, stereotype excuse of saying, well, we don't know of any qualified uh, African Americans or minorities to hire. So uh, from that standpoint, I think it's uh, letting Sports editors know, and it's also doing a better job of preparing young people to know what to expect and, and what would be expected of them if they did get an opportunity uh, to prepare themselves. Uh, all, all of these things come into play. So I, I think it's tremendous. How do you think uh, social media has changed the landscape for actual print journalists and uh, instant tweets? Yeah. It's not like... It is back then when no, yeah. you were a big journalist and writing papers and writing news columns each and every day. Now you see blog posts every other yeah. hour. Yeah, it it has changed tremendously. Uh, the, the whole business, the uh, thirst for instant news, uh, is, is being quenched. I guess with the uh, with the uh, caveat that. 
sometimes the news is not accurate initially. There's so much emphasis on let's get it first, let's get it first, but it's more important to me to make sure it's right. And uh, sometimes that involves a, a few more steps, a couple more phone calls and research uh, as opposed to just pushing the button and, and say, okay, hey, I got, I got it first here. Uh, it's not like a, a Jeopardy game where you push the button yeah. <laughs> and, and, and get the answer. Um, but it, it, it's really, it's, it's changed the day-to-day procedure of, of being a beat writer, especially. Uh, it's nonstop. It used to be when I first started that if you got a, a scoop, you could wait until deadline to write the story, mm-hmm. knowing that the other person's, your competition's deadline is, is coming past for that edition anyway. And uh, and then, you know, the next morning, you, know, you had that feeling, I got you <laughs> on that. And, and, it, and it worked the other way, too, occasionally. And, you know, you get beat on a story. But so there's, you know, there's that give and take uh, that you kind of live for, the adrenaline rush there. So the way it's changed now is that if, if I get this little scoop at, say, 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm expected to tweet it out or blog it or put it online immediately mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, oh, I'm going to hold this and, and – uh, and let the opposition read about it in the you know, morning paper. So it, it's, it's changed uh, changed a lot there. And uh, I, I pride myself on being a, the pioneer, at least at the Chicago Tribune, in terms of taking uh, video with my cell phone. And so I was the first one doing that. And people were, my colleagues were looking around, you know, what are you doing here, you know? <laughs> I said, Believe me, this is this is happening. Yeah. So now, just about everybody is required yeah. to do that. So you, t- you take the video and uh, then you go back up to the press box, pop it into your computer, send it to the to the office, and it appears online and it goes with the story. So it uh, it was good to protect yourself as a journalist, and it was good for protecting the person you're interviewing by having the video because so often before that we would get, you know, you, you might write a controversial story and maybe the backlash is more than the person that you interviewed thought there was going to be. And the person would say, oh, uh, I was misquoted or mm-hmm. I didn't mean it like that or I was taken out of context. So now with the video, you say, not only did you say it, but here's the video and the audio of you saying it. And there's the audio of me asking you the question, so it's not taken out of context. And you can see the expression on your face to see if you're joking or sad or angry. So that uh, eliminates all that, all that uh, blowback that, uh, that we would often get. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, so that's why I say it kind of covers you as a journalist to say that, yeah, you said it, here it is, here's the video and the audio of you saying it. Yeah. So they used to call me, uh, at the end, Mr. Gadget. <laughs> I've always, always had a you know, phone in my pocket and some other tape recorder device and, and cameras. And, uh, I, I, I was at the Tribune for 41 and a half years, and, and I, I think a lot of my longevity had to do with the fact that I was willing to not only keep up, but to, in this case, be, you know, be a pioneer and be the first to, 
use technology to create a better uh, story for the reader, both visually as well as, uh, uh, you know, being able to read it. I, I always felt that uh, the more you can do to kind of make your story come alive uh, and draw readers in, uh, the better we all are. Because the media is so sensitive right now. Oh, sure. Uh, pertaining to Jamel, Jamel Hill right now about her comments, and now she's been suspended for two weeks. Do you think that's they did the right thing by suspending her? Or do you think she was okay by voicing her opinions online? After the first, you know, I could see her uh, uh, getting reprimanded the first time that, that uh, she apparently violated their, their rules. Okay. And then the, the second time she... Uh, I don't know if you'd say knowingly stepped over her bounds, but uh, uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, individual news organizations have their their own rules about such things. The Tribune had had rules and uh, ethics rules and things that uh, uh, they felt crossed the line. So uh, apparently, I mean, I, I'm not speaking for her, but I assume that it meant more to her to express her opinion uh, about this subject than it did to for, protect her uh, her job status, so we, shall we say. So that's a decision uh, a lot of people have to make. And she's, you know, she has a platform. It's her weighing her decision on what's more important to her uh, at this point. Yeah, as well as what's way more important, Colin Kaepernick. That's yeah. huge right now. Yeah. He's going to live a legacy because although he might not have a job right now, he started something that's, that's that was bigger than him, mm-hmm. and that's going to be his legacy. Were there any players that you remember covering who were like a Colin Kaepernick that they were starting something bigger than they expected to mm-hmm. happen? One of my very first uh, interviews was with uh, Tommy Smith, the track star, who took uh, part in the protest in 1968 Olympics in Mexico City with the raised fist on the uh, award stand with uh, John Carlos and I interviewed him probably 1976, 75, 76. At that point, uh, he was coaching at Oberlin College in Ohio, and uh, you know, we talked about that. And that, that I mean, that whole, uh, I, you know, I, I, I lived through that uh, experience, or remember that, that experience, and uh, the way it was handled back then, was very ham-handed, and uh, you know they were sent home, disgraced, talked about very badly, uh, and uh, it wasn't until you know decades later that that situation was viewed differently, and people started saying, "Oh, maybe we should listen uh, to this." Uh, Muhammad Ali, I lived through watching his protests. And I got to know him a little bit in later life and interviewed him a couple of times. Uh, and once again, initially, he was persona non grata for a while. You know, he was like just uh, an outcast. And, uh, and that we've seen that legacy changed uh, to him being a very uh, brave man. There have been a lot of, a lot of uh, African-American athletes who Taking a tough stand, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, comes to mind, uh, Jim Brown, uh, a lot. So, 
It's nothing new. It's not. No, yeah. absolutely. It's nothing. It's nothing new. Um, it's a conversation starter, and and I think that's what gets lost in all these uh, criticisms of the anthem. Is yeah. that this is meant to be a conversation starter with with him kneeling and get people talking about allegations of, of police abuse of minorities and uh, somehow it's gotten diverted and they talk more about Kaepernick than, than, the, than the issue at hand so that's unfortunate yeah I agree what are some things that you took away from your career that can help a young journalist whether they be black Hispanic white that will probably help them in this day and age yeah uh, to be a good journalist you need to be a, a good listener and and also certainly ask the right questions and and realize that everyone has a story to tell. And I don't care if you're, you know, Muhammad Ali or if you're the so-called ordinary person on the street, everybody has a story of things that they've had to overcome to get either just to be able to get by or in the case of some of these great celebrities to make it to where they are. So just... Think about uh, Michael Jordan. If nobody had ever bothered to ask him about being cut from his junior high basketball team, and how that still resonates uh, with him uh, when that topic is brought up, but that's something that, that that's important to know about him. And obviously, the, the personal problems, his father being murdered. The point is that, regardless of, of what level of success anyone might meet there's a story behind it and tragedy and misfortune and obstacles and times when they could have given up and gone another path so as a journalist it's important for you to find the human interest side of it and and, and that's something that everyone can relate to so that you write if you're a sports journalist you should be able to write a story that appeals not only to sports fans but to just anybody who's interested in, in the human spirit. People who may not otherwise be interested in basketball or football or hockey, if you write a good human interest story and draw a reader in in that way, then then you've done your job. And uh, those are, that's the type of story that I, I uh, enjoy doing. Uh, I also talk about uh, being observant as a journalist and write what you observe describe a scene. Uh, one of the columns that I wrote at the Tribune was was, was with uh, uh, Reby Sori, about Reby Sori. Reby Sori was a, a lineman, offensive lineman with the Bears and blocked for Walter Payton in the 70s. Tremendous man. Uh, was involved in the community in Chicago. Uh, just just a, a great person. And he had two strokes. And the second one, uh, prevented him from being able to talk initially. and uh, So I went to visit him at a rehab center. This is about three or four years ago. And uh, so I sat with him for an hour. I showed him pictures, some books, and pointed to things. So I, when I wrote the column, I just wrote about what I observed, the pictures in the room, and how he's looking through the pages. So I, I said we sat in comfortable silence for an hour. And so just by writing about what you see and observe, you don't necessarily have to have the, 
direct quotes from a person to be able to, to write a, a meaningful story. So I would advise journalists to, to be aware of, of their surroundings, the expressions on people's faces, um, and also to learn and, and, and stay up on all aspects, of, not just sports. If you're a sports writer, you know, you got to be a, a, up to snuff on politics, social issues, medical issues, business issues, finances, advertising. All of these things are part of what you have to write about. So uh, you, you need to stay on top of that. The resources that we have nowadays, I wish I had uh, when I started out. You know, to be able to, to Google, and you know, if you have, you have a question, all you have to do is Google it now. So there's no excuse for not checking and double-checking things. So back when I started, if there was a trade, let's say when I was covering the Cubs in the early 80s, and the Cubs made a trade with the San Diego Padres, uh, I would have to call the beat writer from the Padres uh, you know, from, in San Diego who covered the Padres, and I'd say, uh, what, did, what did your guy say on his way out? Can, can you give me a quote? Mm-hmm. And I said, my, the guy from the Cubs going your way, here's a quote from him. So, and this might take you know, a couple hours before we were able to connect to get get it done. Wow. Now, what you can watch a, a press conference live on video on online. On Periscope. It's, it's just it's just <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. Or Twitter, you get a quote. So, uh, it just really expedites things. So, I I, I uh, encourage journalists today to take advantage of the instant uh, information that comes from the resources that you have available to you. Awesome. One last question for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's been the most important thing that's made you successful in your career? What have you done or what motivated you? What motivated me? Yeah. Just a, a determination to do the very best that I could at whatever they asked me to, to do. Uh, like I said, early in my career, there were a couple of people who came to me and, and, and seemed to question or doubt my ability to, to do something without giving me an opportunity. Just told me, oh, I got a feeling that uh, this is not going to work out type of thing. And uh, so I, I always remember that, and I say it's like I'm going to show you that I can do it, and I can do it as as well or better than anybody else that you have on your staff. And uh, I think you have to have that that work ethic and, and willingness to work long hours, which I did, and to try to get better. And writing is always a work in progress. When I started out, I was working on the copy desk four days a week, 12-hour work shifts. And so I had three days off, so to speak. But on those three days, I was freelancing for a local newspaper in the south suburbs, substitute teaching, I was writing for magazines and books. So I was trying to work my craft so that when I do get a chance to be a, a beat writer, like they said I would one day if I, you know, kept doing well, I don't. I want to make sure that I was ready to go, and and I was able to make that transition because I had done that and, and worked it, and worked long hours, weekends, uh, whatever, whatever it takes. That was my my attitude. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Mitchell. It's an my honor. Pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime.
thanks for listening to another week of the Sports and Show podcast with Audio Me Sosina. I truly enjoyed having the opportunity to sit down and chat with Mr. Fred Mitchell. He is truly an inspiration and a pioneer for many journalists in the field of sports. With over 40 years of knowledge, journalism experience, it was just a pleasure to be able to sit down and learn so much from him. And I hope you all enjoyed the conversation that we had. Don't forget to subscribe and rate and review the podcast. We truly enjoy and appreciate when you guys can give us some feedback. And it truly helps us grow as a podcast. Don't forget, we will have a new podcast coming to you next week with a special guest. I hope you all continue to enjoy. Don't forget, be smart. Don't do anything stupid.